So uh, I think the hardest thing probably in the world, uh, aside from, you know, just impossible physical tasks, is like to change somebody's mind uh, about something. If you are set in a certain way or you've thought a certain way, you've learned a certain thing, it is, uh, may I say, impossible to get somebody uh, assuaged from the way that they've already thought the way the world works or something like that. And so um, I think uh, what I want to do today is walk uh, one main road while there's a parallel road next to it that uh, I'm not majoring on this other second parallel road, but it makes a, I think I make all the points that are necessary to hopefully at least present you with the information that you might need to change your mind about perhaps the way that you've thought about things. So I'm, uh, I'm what you call a theology nerd. And uh, so a lot of the things that interest me or the, 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 the fine minutia that I get into, you don't care about. And so uh, I want you to bear with me for the first part of this uh, introduction. If you're a sleeper, just fight it for me for the first 10 minutes, okay? And uh, I, I promise uh, you'll be rewarded. This is for you, and, um, and uh, I, I think it's important that it's something that you know. And so um, here's, here's largely what I see uh, as a principle for how things work, right? Whatever you're taught is what you become expectant of. If I tell you that the world is flat and you've been told the world is flat from the time that you were a child and you could understand language, then you're going to expect things that would support that hypothesis, right? You're going to think that the world is flat, and so your expectations then will shape your experience, right? Because you expect the world to be flat and because you're looking for the evidence that the world is flat, you will experience a flat world, believe it or not. And this... Uh, this is uh, effectively a problem for us, going back to the first thing I said, which is it's almost impossible to change somebody's mind because they've already formed the expectations for what they can see. And that sort of becomes a blinder to them to other things outside of their experience. And so it's when something interrupts that, like, you know, a picture from outer space that shows a round world, right? And, and then you're, you're forced to reconcile this new information with what you've already known and what you've come to expect and what you think that you've experienced, right? And so having that sort of mindset is sort of how we walk through everything. And this, this reconciliation process is how we learn everything and how we are changed in anything that we think. And so when I began to take the study of Scripture seriously, um, it reshaped my thinking. Imagine that. Uh, it's really true that, the, that we will be renewed by, uh, our, in our minds, by God's word, if we, if we uh, put it first, and we have it set as our highest priority. And so I found that to preserve what I already expected and what I already been taught would require me to ignore explicit statements of scripture, okay? I would have to ignore those things or dismiss them in some way, and that became difficult for me intellectually. And so uh, I didn't want to ig ignore what I had been taught, but I also didn't want to ignore what uh, scripture said. And so when I put it at the top, if I, if it, when, when it finally became the main filter in my life, I said, whatever, whatever the Bible says, I need, I need to believe that. Regardless of whatever I feel, what I think I've experienced, what I've been told, guess what? That filter began to strain some things out. And it changed how I looked at things. And not only did it change about how I expected things going forward because I had a new teaching, but it also allowed me to look backwards at the stuff that I'd already experienced in this new light. Okay? And so though you may already think a certain way and think that you've arrived here on a flat earth or something like that, right? 
Perhaps by being challenged and having this reconciliation process, you can not only look forward with better expectations, but also then look in the rearview mirror and see things for what they really were all along, okay? None of this comes about in our life without uh, what I'll call a crisis moment, right? You, you have to be faced with the reality that what you think, what you've experienced, what you know is not as you think it is. And that, that truly faces you with some kind of problem. Because we invest so much of who we are, what we feel we are as human beings into what we believe and what we think about the world and, and life, um, to have that challenged is then a challenge to our very being. And so that becomes even a greater hurdle to overcome. It's not just intellectual assent anymore. It's, it's really a challenge to who we believe we are. And so God's word, not the book itself, but literally his word to us is more important than any of our experiences. It's more important than any of our traditions or our teaching. Nothing overrides God's word. Period. Okay? But there's heartache and frustration and fervor attached to this because there's emotion attached to this. And so I I want to say that sort of as the preamble. And so what we tend to do is, uh, at this crisis moment, is choose choose one of two things. To reconcile it and, and err on the side of some greater authority or to then push it away and then insulate ourselves and so that we're not challenged anymore. And so we find people or places or ideas that affirm what we already think. And I don't want you to do that. So um, I know that you probably have a personal identity attached to this because it's what you've been taught or because it's the tradition you were raised in. And I'm not challenging that to devalue that. I, I want you to agree with what scripture says because it is so much more freeing than probably what you think and what you've approached today with. And I say all that baiting you for what is coming, right? So I I think it's important to reflect on that entire concept for this reason. That's the exact mentality and the way that Saul is approaching his life at the moment we find him confronted by the God of the universe. He's got a way that he's been raised, a way that he thinks, a way that he knows God is, a way that he believes God operates, and all of that is brought to a crash in a, very, in a moment that he did not anticipate, that he was not looking for, that he did not expect. And that confrontation brings about the dramatic change that brings us the man that wrote the majority of the New Testament and all the doctrine that we so, uh, you know, go through in all the minutiae, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a dramatic change from this kind of uh, crisis moment. And so I want you to see that who Saul was is who we largely are when we walk into uh, this place. And and even though it's not maybe uh, unbeliever to believer, every week it's something like, I already think I know the way the world operates. I think I know how God is. And he says, no, this is who I am. And he reveals himself in his word. And that crisis moment is asking you to respond accordingly. So will you walk with me today? Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray for our time um, that you've appointed for us this morning to meet you here as your people. And um, God, I just pray that you would do um, the work that only you can, which is to help us spiritually, to grow us into the likeness of your son, to form us and shape us, our lives and our spirits and all that we are into what you intend for us. God, I pray that um, this morning you would help me to be patient and slow, articulate clearly only what you want to say, and may everything else just fall away. Father, open our ears to hear you speaking. 
Open our eyes to see what's true. And God, we need your spirit to soften our hearts and open them that you would plant your word in us. So do this, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. This morning we're gonna be uh, Acts chapter nine and uh, largely in the same scripture we were in. I'm going to hopefully see if my slides weren't working. If not, Walter, I need your help. Um, Acts chapter nine, verse one through 19. And we are, there we are, going to talk about divine appointments uh, and talking about today being the day of salvation, okay? So some things in, uh, in, the, in the Christian faith, um, they're, they're divided into tiers, if you will, okay? So we're still in that preamble part where I ask you to stay awake for me, okay? All right, so they're divided into tiers and some things are primary. Some things are secondary, some things are tertiary, and some things are you have too much time on your hands, okay? So when we talk about what we're talking about today, we're talking about a primary doctrine, which is soteriology. Give me that first slide if you would. Soteriology is basically this. It is the study of salvation. It's the area of the Christian faith and doctrine dealing with how and what salvation is, okay? So, so soter is the Greek word for, for savior or salve, saving, okay? And then ology, science or study. So soteriology, the, 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 the study of what salvation is. It's primary because it deals with the foundation and the substance of what it means to be one of God's people or not one of God's people. That's why it's a primary thing. So you can't get something in the primary area wrong and still be considered uh, in the faith, okay? So it's primary in that sense. Now, the tension and maybe some of the other expectations that we have come from a secondary tier thing, which is the ordo salutis, okay? That's the next slide. That simply means in Latin, the order of salvation. That means the, the explicit process by which the, the actual salvation of an individual comes apart, uh, comes, comes uh, to be, right? So it's a, it's a precise sequence of events and the ordo, or the order of that thing, is, is largely considered secondary doctrine so long as you don't flip things so far on their head that it, that it puts you in power, okay? And so long as you use the same working orthodox definitions of what grace is and what, and what uh, God's calling to you is, all right? So, so the elements, though, must all be there. And they must be articulated in a way that agrees with Scripture. So I'm not going to settle 17 or 1800 years of debates about the Ordo Salutis. That's not my intention this morning. My intention this morning is to give you the necessary elements for the soteriology so that we all agree on um, how that comes about. So if you give me that next slide. Um, this is, uh, go ahead and just click through. There's going to be four or five things that come up. Okay? So uh, as it's presented in... Um, in scripture, there's elements that come about, and uh, this is somewhat of the order. Keep coming. Just give me all of them, okay? So there's hearing that, it, that attaches itself to believing. There's receiving the news that comes with humbling yourself. There's responding to what truth has been presented to you, and then repentance that comes after that. There's seeing who God is as Lord of the universe. There's honoring that truth. Then there's obeying and walking in that truth, and then there's the going of what he has for you in your life. And so the reason I highlighted those first three sections is what I, I think we're going to get through this morning, right? With, with, with uh, Saul's encounter with the risen, resurrected Lord of the universe, he, he hears the truth, he believes that truth, he receives it, he's humbled by it, he responds and he repents, and then we'll look next week at the seeing, the honoring, the going, et cetera, et cetera. And so this ends up being a cycle, if you look along the bottom, about 
um, where, where uh, Paul presents it later in Romans, Saul, same guy, right? Is, is that um, this idea that how can, they, how can they respond to a word that's not been preached to them? And how can they, um, and how can they preach unless they've been sent? And, and so he goes through this whole cycle. And so the whole thing actually repeats itself over and over if you follow it through. So that once you get to the obeying and going, you're the person being sent to go and spread the word. And therefore, the cycle starts again and again. Does it make some kind of sense what I'm trying to get to? Okay? So let me read to this to you out of Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. And what's called... Uh, the, the chain of redemption, or the golden chain of redemption. It goes something like this. And we know that, uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that. Amen? We want the, we want the good of God in our lives. And then 29 and 30 of this uh, section explains how this comes about. For those whom he, he being God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he is also glorified, if you'll walk through those two. So this is called the golden chain of redemption because it walks you through the beginning of anyone's conversion, which is the justification thing, and then going all the way to the end of it, which is the goal of our faith, which is to be glorified. So we have rebirth, if you will, which is conversion, and it happens in a a specific moment in time, right? But that conversion takes place, though, though in our lifetimes, it's, it's instantaneous, it, it marks justification, it's signified by repentance and faith. We're told here that we were predestined and foreknown, and so that puts those things before our justification in time. And so these things all build upon one another to bring us to completion. And so this morning, this is what I, I want you to resolve on, okay? So give me that next slide. Everybody say this out loud. Salvation belongs. One more time. Salvation. Indeed it does. Psalm 3.8 explicitly says this. When Jonah finds that he's not in control of who gets the grace and who doesn't get grace, he says the same thing. Salvation is of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It's of the Lord. Revelation 7, 9 through 11 talks about all the saints when they're in heaven and the scene in the throne room where they're casting their crowns down and they're glorifying God because he's the one. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What does this mean? It means you cannot do anything to save yourself. That's, that, that shouldn't offend anyone. That's good news, okay? Salvation is an already accomplished work. It's an established fact historically. While you were not yet born, before you were a twinkle in your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's eye, before all of those things, you were foreknown, predestined. Jesus went to the cross to bear sin, to turn away God's wrath. He suffered sin in the grave. He walked out with the keys. He's risen, resurrected, and uh, he's in heaven, reigning on high, ever living to make intercession for his people as King of kings and Lord, and Lord of lords. All of that is accomplished and done for you. Salvation is of the Lord. Without asking for any of it, before you could be alive to even need it, or merit it, it was already done without seeking it, without participating in, without doing it. Salvation was accomplished. Okay? Okay. So this is uh, uh, just the, the big words, more big words. Okay? The next one is this. Monergism versus synerg synergism. Okay? Mono means one, and ergo is work. There's only one working 
in salvation. We believe in monergistic salvation. Synergism says we work with God to save ourselves. And um, I want you to, to um, agree with me that salvation is of the Lord, and that means that he's the one that's worked that out. And though we're told to work out our salvation, that does not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. That is work from salvation. Because you've been saved, we work. That's not for salvation, okay? So we believe in monergistic salvation. It's of God. What's more is that you are not a neutral party. Not only did you not participate in the bringing about and the accomplishing of any of this, you are in active rebellion to God. You are indifferent to his will, his plans, his ways. You're hostile towards Christ, towards God. This is expressed in Romans 1, 5, uh, and 10. Colossians 1, 21, and you were once alienated and hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds far away from God until his grace came and he brought you in. So nowhere has there entered into the chat an opportunity for you to work with God to bring about what he intends. Okay? Okay. So there's the majority of the preamble. Now we can get to the text. Are you there? Okay, so we're going to start in Acts chapter 9. Walter, if you put that up for me. So here we are. Saul traveling. He's he's acquired the uh, letters that he wants to Damascus because he wants to go and persecute the the brothers uh, and the disciples of the Lord there. So here it is. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any any excuse, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so as I just said, we're not a neutral party; we're actively hostile to the way of God. Okay, God encounters us not because not because we find the right path. Not because we find the right path, but precisely because we are not on the right path. I want you to reflect on that in light of what we talked about last week, about the logistics of the Spirit and how he puts things together and lines things up. And we think we need to discern in our abilities getting on the right road so that we might make God's will happen. And I want you to see that in the most crucial part of anybody's faith, salvation You were on the wrong road, and that's why God met you. Do you see that? Okay? So here we are, doing our own thing, not on the right path. God is not waiting for you to get on the right path. Otherwise, he'd still be waiting. Okay? He finds you on the wrong path, and he finds you doing your own thing. And so um, we don't need to choose correctly in that sense. It's not binding God to get you to do what he wants. It's his purposes that come about in the place that he already intended. Saul thinks he started to Damascus for his own purposes, and maybe he did in his own decisive way. But God started Saul towards Damascus for his purposes. Do you see that? Okay? So I want you to see um, that this is, this is uh, a picture of us. Us going our own way, doing our own thing, choosing our own ideas, even actively hostile towards the things of God. And yet this is the exact place that God intends to bring Saul to meet him there. So I want you to see that Jesus does not make salvation possible. He makes salvation actual. Jesus didn't say, I came to point to a way that might possibly get you to the end. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And all that belong to me will come to me. And all that the Father gives me cannot be taken from my hand. Okay? That's actuality, not possibility. And so we, we, we should um, revel in that and be thankful that God doesn't wait for us to find the way to possibly get to salvation. 
but that he actively seeks us out, appoints a time, appoints a way for us where he will confront us. So here we are, verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. As, as he went. This is, a, this is a, um, it's speaking of a specific kind of time progression. What we see in Acts is that God the Spirit makes arrangements and appointments, okay? Appointments are, are planned, intentional, purpose-filled ideas. So if you throw that up, the next one, uh, appointments. To set an appointment is to, to set or to fix officially or establish a specific time to do something, a, spe- a specific time and place. You and I make uh, appointments all the time. Some of you run on your own time and you never make them or you're late or whatever, right? God's never late, never misses the appointment, is never wrong, never establishes the wrong place. He, when he makes appointments, they happen and they have purpose, okay? The other part of appointment is the idea of setting someone into a specific position to designate them into a role. That's the second part that we'll look at next week. Both of these happen in one moment, in a moment in time for Saul. An appointment is forward-looking. It implies planning, intention, purpose. It is foresight, not hindsight. It is seeing ahead, this is what I will accomplish at this time, okay? Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read you 4 through 10. It says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before him, okay? I want you to just track with the the story being told in scripture right now. He, He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. There's there's the purpose in his choosing. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in um, the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, Pay attention real carefully here towards the end, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He saw forward before anything happened in the predestination part, in the foreknowing part. He sees his purposes coming about. His wisdom brings that. His insight says, this is how this is going to happen. And then he makes known to us a mystery. It's a mystery to us in time, but the fullness of time according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So we're told here that we're chosen, loved, predestined before the foundation of the world, that God had planned and executed all of this. And what we tend to want to do, because we've been taught this way, because it feels better to us, is we, we deduce something like, that means I have no choice in life. And the implication of this is that God is some kind of moral monster, and we're just robots, and he's a big meanie head because he's sending some people to hell and some people to heaven. And I don't want you to see that. What highlighted here is that because of God's wisdom and his insight and his beloved love that, that preceded him and all of that is to the praise of his grace, we come to a moment in time where we are revealed to God's purposes in our lives. Saul comes to a specific moment in time, a specific moment in your life, in my life, where you're confronted with God's plan. It's a pre-planned event, but it's not by us. Verse four says that Saul falls to the ground. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? That's a, that's a, a personal question. It's, it's intensely personal. This is relational question. He doesn't ask, why are you persecuting my friends? Why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting those people? Christ himself 
identifies with the people that are being persecuted and calls them me. That means the union between us and Christ is so, so close and so blessed and so sure that we should take solace in that. Jesus' own identification with his people is why we can trust in his salvation being sure and powerful. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse five, he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting me. Or excuse me, whom you are, whom you are persecuting. I pointed out last week that, um, that, that Saul doesn't recognize God himself. He, he uses the divine name, I am Jesus, right? And so we must all be, um, oh, excuse me, everyone must come to faith uh, by coming face to face with Christ's identity. Everyone comes to faith First, by coming and reconciling the reality of who Christ is. He's Lord. He is Lord. He answers them. Who, who are you? And um, the response, uh, I, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so verse 6 says, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Everyone that comes to faith, everyone that has to reconcile with Christ's identity, must also be turned from what can I do to what must I do. Everyone has to turn from what can I do to accomplish this to what must I do. And this is what he says, you will be told what you are to do, what you are to do. And our biggest struggle, I think, is humility. And this is really where where God must break down our hard, stony hearts so that he can do a work in us. Humility means recognizing Jesus is Lord and you're not. Okay? Jesus is Lord and you're not. And we are in the position of need, not in the position of, 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 of attaining, of achieving, of grabbing. And we all walk through our lives with this illusion of control that occasionally God graciously busts up for us and allows, and allows us to, to, to realize that we're just small human beings and that he's really the one in charge of everything. You, you know that the illusion of control is busted in a moment, right? In one doctor's appointment, in one phone call, right? And, and so the re- there's, there's a distinction there. Receiving, uh, seeing is not perceiving. There's, there's a distinction there. Receiving, uh, seeing is not perceiving. And, and uh, Isaiah prophesies about people that hear but don't hear, right? See but don't see. And Jesus says the same thing when he comes and he declares the kingdom and he declares it in parables and people don't get it. So he says, why are you teaching parables? The disciples ask. He says, so that hearing they don't hear and seeing they don't see so that what was prophesied might be true of them. He looks, but he doesn't see. He looks, but he doesn't recognize. He's entirely aware. All of his senses are, are apparently open, but he does not perceive. And I want you to see that God must get our attention and he must get our hearts. He gets our attention and he gets our hearts. Saul's companions do not have the same, if you want to say it this way, result as Saul does. They share the same experience that Saul had, but they don't share the same result. They heard the voice presumably saw the light. That's not explicit in the text. Their eyes are open, we're told that, but they did not see. Why didn't the power of this experience have the same effect on them? I, I want you to see both sides of this. This, is an exhaust, this isn't an exhaustive explanation, but I think we see something personal here. The Lord did not address you all. He specifically meant to meet Saul there on that road. Saul in particular. And hearing the same message does not necessarily mean that, um, and having the same experience does not necessarily mean that we'll have the same result, that salvation is not equally spread just because we have the same experience. Does that make sense? 
It's why you can come in and hear the very voice of the Lord speaking to your heart that you need him. And the person sitting right next to you, even your spouse, your brother, sister, whatever, can hear the same words, have the same experience, but not feel the call of God in their life. And it, it's meant to point you to two things. One is that the call is very personal and that, um, and, uh, and that there's nothing inherent in you that makes that call, that, that, that makes that call more worthwhile. It's the same call that went out, and there's nothing inherent in you that makes you better because you responded to it. Do, do you want to agree with that? Hopefully you, you see that. That's true. So the same, um, the same truth has already been presented to Saul. At, at Pentecost, he, if he uh, was not directly there, he certainly heard of what had happened at Pentecost, that the, the spirit of all the, the tongues, all the baptisms. And uh, he had, was definitely there when Stephen declared all of the gospel to the Sanhedrin, and he was there at the stoning. He, he heard this same truth already before, but it was not yet his time. And so I, I want you to see that um, we, we should not lose hope for those who are lost because they've been presented one time or two times or three times or however many times with the truth, but have not yet felt God's voice in their heart. No one is too far gone, too indifferent, too broken, too hostile for the Lord to save them. So don't believe that your words are meaningless or that you're doing something wrong. It's not in your presentation. It just may not be their time, okay? This was not God's appointed time when that happened before, but now it is God's appointed time for Saul. So they led him by the hand. That's his companions. They led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Um, we're told in uh, Acts 22 as... as um, Paul's retelling his testimony. He does it twice, in 22 and 26. But he says it was for the glory of the light that he couldn't see. He was blinded, literally. I, I told you guys a story a couple months ago now about how I was cleaning my hot tub and burned my eyeballs with the, the UV light, man. And the, this, is, this is UV times a billion, right? It's the glory of the Lord. And surprisingly, Paul's um, eyeballs don't just melt from their sockets. But I want you to do something for me. Humor me and just close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. Saul is blinded. He's unable to navigate the world. And as you close your eyes, there's suddenly a feeling of vulnerability with that. Like I, I could walk real close to you, I could throw something at you, you wouldn't know it. There's a sense of not being able to navigate the way that you've always been able to navigate and see the world and operate in the world. Okay, now open your eyes. Saul is blinded in this moment as an example and a truth about what he's always been doing. He's unable to navigate the world, which is truly what he's always been doing. And here's, here's what I tried to make the point last week, and I'll make it again this week. You, you navigate the world by sight and not by faith. And, and it's, our, it's our spiritual eyes that are blinded to, to God and his ways and, and, and it's by encountering Christ that he sees the truth about what he always was. He was always blind, but now it's been made explicit. He's been made vulnerable. He has to be led by someone else to accomplish the task that he set out on his own to do, under his own weight and power, etc., right? But now he's being led by the hand to get somewhere. All of his preferences have been taken away. He's rendered, if you will, powerless. Again, we must all be humbled before God and recognize our inability when you cannot see, it's much easier, though, to focus on all the other distractions that were 
were potentially key, or excuse me, let me say that differently. When you close your eyes or if you were blinded, you suddenly are able to more focus on things without distractions. That's what I meant to say, right? Suddenly your, your, your hearing becomes like a little bit more like you're trying to hear what's going on because you can't see anymore if somebody's moving, but you kind of listen for motion, right? And uh, so, so we're more aware, we become hyper aware. And so I think that's an important insight here about why God has blinded Saul in this moment. In verse 10, let's keep going. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street that is called Straight, to the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Uh, Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. There's an interesting use here uh, that there's a vision for Ananias and there's a vision for Saul, all while Saul is blind. And so I, I just want you to, in your heart, in your mind, whatever, think of the person that you would identify as the furthest from God, the absolute most hostile, rebellious person in, that you cannot imagine coming to the faith, who would never darken the doors of church, multiply that times about a thousand, arm them with the ability to murder you and throw you in jail, and then you might approach what Ananias is thinking about Saul in this moment. You would have some concerns, right? Some hostility towards that person. You would hesitate probably in this moment. But more than the hostile feelings you might feel towards them, I want you to ask what purpose might God have for them? Your testimony probably isn't as dramatic as as Saul was. Like you you probably weren't murdering Christians before you came to the Lord. I mean, maybe you were, and you can keep that to yourself. That's fine. It's between you and the Lord, I guess now. (laughs) Um, So your testimony may not be as dramatic, but it's no less a miracle for God to reach you. It doesn't matter how lost we are It's a small thing for God, okay? God reaches down and scrapes the bottom of the barrel, not the top of the heap to reach you. We have a a silly notion that we were more savable than other people. Does, Does that make sense? Like, because I just said, think of the worst person you can think of, and you probably had somebody already in mind, right? And you're like, they're way less savable than I was. God, trust me, he was scraping the bottom of the barrel for me and you, Okay? We, we, we don't merit it because we're somehow closer to the line of good, right? We're all horribly reprobate without the love of God changing us. He doesn't just deal with the, the good people or the kind of good people or the not very bad people. He deals with all the really, really bad people. And this, uh, we need to see uh, when we start categorizing people, we, we, not, we tend to make a, a smallness of God's power to save and God's mighty to save. And he can save anyone regardless of who they are and what they've done. In 1 Timothy, Paul says this. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank him who's given me the strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. He appointed me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent. I was an opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So before he came to faith, he was all of these things. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me and the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And now in verse 15, hear carefully. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I 
am the foremost. That's a saying he's saying, okay? So the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Here's the saying, that Christ Jesus came in the world to not make salvation possible, not to hope for some salvations, but to save, right? He came into the world to save sinners. Now you say, of whom? Not the bad person you already thought of, that you thought was at the bottom of the barrel. You and I are foremost because we're blasphemers, we're persecutors, we're hostile towards God. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, this is Saul now talking, Paul, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life and to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God be honor and glory forever. Amen. So verse 15, we pick it up. The Lord said to him, go. Ananias, I know he's a bad dude, but go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument for a specific purpose. God has a plan already in his mind for Saul. He knows what he's going to accomplish through him, but he's got to get through this first step. And so while you might assume that bringing the gospel to all these people will be entailed with much glory, and we lionize Saul and Paul now for a good reason, but all of his opportunities will come by way of suffering. And so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and he laid his hands on him, saying, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came and has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately Something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. I, I mushed all that together and that was a lot of good stuff right there. There's a lot of metaphors and illustrations and types that are used in scripture to tell us about how somebody who's dead becomes alive and somebody who was sick becomes well and somebody who's an enemy becomes a friend and somebody who's not belonging to the family becomes adopted. Like, over and over, you see the same themes repeated, and the common theme is our inability and God's immense power. Your blindness, and then God's immense power to give you sight. Blindness speaks of our ineptitude, and it's an intervention by God that gives us sight. I want you to think about the story when Jesus asked the question, who, who do people say that I am, right? And they're firing off, I don't know, John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah, you're just a prophet from God. And then he narrows it down and he asks the disciple, but who do you say that I am? And maybe you remember then Peter's response is, you are Jesus the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're Lord, right? And it's this confession that Jesus responds something specific. He says, blessed are you, Simon, Peter, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Do you know what he's saying in that moment? He, says, he doesn't say, you're blessed because you saw something nobody else saw. He says, you didn't see this in your own doing. It wasn't flesh and blood that allowed you to see the truth. It was something else. What is that something else? The Holy Spirit gave Peter in that moment the eyes to see who God really is in form of the man. Blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It wasn't revealed by Peter's doing it wasn't a logical deduction. It was the Holy Spirit who opened the eyes of his heart. It's by the Spirit that we're able to see. And we see that once Ananias comes in, lays his hands on him, calls him brother. I'm sure that was a terrifying moment, right? The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you, has sent me so that you will regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, all mushed together. It's one thing. 
Once he has the spirit, he has sight. Being able to see is the illustration of a new spiritual condition. The scales are removed from Saul all at once. He can perceive all that he had missed before, all that he had thought before, the crisis moment, that I'm going to go do my thing and serve God in this way because I know who God is and he hates these Christians. He's confronted with the actual God, Christ, Jesus. I am here and you're blind. And everything for several days is left up to Saul to think about that crisis moment, right? But once he's filled with the Spirit, he can see the scales fall from his eyes. He had an apocalypse, if you will. That's the true meaning of that word, a revelation of who Christ Jesus is. He's eternally changed. He's included in the family. He walks in the faith. He's then baptized, filled with the Spirit, made alive with Christ. I once was blind, but now I... Thank you. You responded in saving faith. You were justified by Christ's blood. You're born again, new creation, filled with the Spirit, sealed for eternity, given the inheritance of eternal life. Hooray and amen, right? There's one piece of this where you play a part. Being saved, okay? The one place where you might want to grasp something. I did something. Yes, you did. You, you were saved. You were saved, <laughs> This too is a work of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to give you sight, to fill you with himself, to seal you, to bring you to a new person, to include you in the family of God. In Titus 3, verses 3 through 8, we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to our passions and our pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, and we were hated by others, and we hated one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God Our Savior appeared. He saved us. But it wasn't because of the works by us or done for us by ourselves in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's the whole story. That's the whole story right there. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, doing your own thing. But when Christ came to us, he shed his grace on us, his mercy, he saved us. Not because we did anything, reminder there, not because we had done anything to get it, but by washing and regeneration, filling us with the Holy Spirit, he included us. And now we're in the faith and we belong to him. So I have good news I have maybe some hard news, but I have no bad news this morning. The good news is that it's never too late. It's never too far. It's never too wrong to respond to who Christ is. But it is humbling. That might be hard news. You you might have to reconcile with the fact that um, you, you could have sat in church your whole life. You could have been taught one way your whole life. You could believe, but not be converted. And that's, that's an that's a important distinction to make. Simon, the magician, he believed. Remember, he believed, but he wasn't converted. You must be converted to this truth, that you didn't do anything to get here, but God did everything that you might get here. And when you trust in that, it's an already accomplished work, and that's why it's good news. They say, you may have brought some other teaching into this morning, thinking that I've got to hold on to this thing. If I, if I don't merit it, if I'm, I'm not good enough or whatever it is, they might think in your brain that you could lose this. But if you're trusting in an already accomplished work, that's good news this morning. And if you haven't, I want you to be converted to that truth. I want you to, I want you to grasp that. I want you to submit yourself to that truth. 
God's will will come to pass. He does all that he pleases. And he sets appointments for us. And over and over through the Psalms, David prophetically says, so that um, there's a day that's fixed and it's called the day of salvation. And then Hebrews later refers to this and it says, so that um, today is the right time. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, but call on his name. Call on it. So long as it's called today, today might be the day of salvation. Today might be the appointed time for you. But you don't ignore it. You respond to it, right? So this morning, um, would you close your eyes? There's a old chorus, and it's a simple petition, but it matches perfectly what we were asking earlier for God to do. In Ephesians 1, it says, I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would give you all wisdom and insight, that he would open the proverbial spiritual eyes of your heart. So this morning, as Scarlet leads us in these words, would you sing this with her as your prayer, that God would open the eyes of your heart to see him truly, that he would reveal himself to you, that you would trust him fully in a great salvation. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my I want to see you. I want to see you. Would you sing that again? Open the eyes. Open the eyes of my Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want High and See you hide and lift it up, shining in the light of your glory. Put out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. See you hide and lift it up, shining in the light of your
God, you're good. We thank you this morning for your promise um, that we don't have to get on the right road, but you will present yourself to us in truth and that you would reveal yourself to us. We might know you for you, that we would walk through this life with our eyes open to your truth, that we would search for your ways and follow wherever you lead. Yeah, we are grateful this morning as a people done nothing to accomplish this great work but get to rest firmly in your palm mercy grace and love father i pray that you would cement the message this morning into our hearts into our spirits we would be converted to the truth may it rest in us all of our all of our days here until you accomplish the end we're glorified with you Love you. Pray this.